Well, thank you. It is um, such a kindness of the Lord to bring us here and um, for your elders and pastors to welcome us and to welcome me to their pulpit to preach God's word to you for two years. And I can't think of a better series for us to have gone through this last year on Sunday nights and just so grateful to all of you for welcoming us and, um, and for bearing with us. Uh, in, this, in this final uh, sermon that I'll preach in this series, I want to invite you to turn to uh, the historical book of Daniel, and we're looking at Daniel chapter 6 this evening, and while there are so many other places we could go, even in the book of Daniel, to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, I felt like this would probably be the most appropriate one for us to consider. Um, in a sense, it is the centerpiece. It is the most well-known account in the book of Daniel. It's the one that uh, every child who grows up in church learns as a child, and yet I, I wonder if so many are lost on the Christological purpose of this passage. It's very interesting. I was telling Pastor Cosby earlier when you listen to ministers, they either really get Christ right in this passage or they really miss him completely. And I fear a lot of times we're in that latter category. Um, And so I hope tonight that the Lord will open all of our eyes to see the Lord Jesus. And so if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 6. We're going to look at the entirety of the chapter. We're going to read down from verse 1 to verse 28. And as always, I know that you'll find it helpful to have a copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Here, Daniel is on his uh, third uh, ruler in uh, the Babylonian captivity. He, he, as a young man, had been led captive with Israel, and he had been under the reign, you'll remember, of Nebuchadnezzar, and then uh, Belshazzar, and then now, finally, Darius, and we'll consider that in just a second. But here, Uh, In Daniel 6, we read, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, or governors, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, an injunction. 
When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, do you not sign an injunction that anyone... Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the laws, law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that is the law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. And then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste, to the den of lions, and he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, or perhaps better translated, that is the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of my favorite scenes in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is as Christian is making his way to the celestial city and as he comes to a place where he can rest on the way and he sees a a palace that he can rest in, he sees two lions in front of that palace and they're roaring, and he realizes that many have turned back 
because of the roaring of these lions. And he is met by the porter who realizes that he is somewhat fearful. And the porter says to Christian, is your strength so small? Fear not the lions. They are chained, are in place there for trial of faith where it is and for discovery of those who have none. Keep in mind the path and no hurt shall come to you. And Christian will go on trembling past those lions, realizing they can't hurt him. Now, those lions historically are Bunyan reflecting on civil and ecclesiastical authorities that, that were raging against the nonconformist in the church that were threatening to imprison were mocking and deriding those ministers that were nonconformists like Bunyan, who were not conforming to civil authority over the church, were not conforming to what the state said the church had to do and ministers had to do. And, and so in a special way, he is reflecting on those, what the Bible calls principalities and powers, and, and, and seeing in them an apt illustration in these lions that would, if they could, devour whoever came by there. Now, I, I chose that as an introduction for obvious reasons. Uh, in the Bible, the, the imagery of lions often denotes uh, forces of darkness, especially in so much as they are manifested in governmental powers, in the kingdoms of this world. Uh, Satan himself, Peter says, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And, and in the very next chapter of Daniel, Daniel will talk about um, four beasts, and he'll be talking about political powers. And, and the first beast is in the form, apocalyptically, is in the form of a lion. Um, and there is rich symbolism here. Now, when, when most of us have been taught this lesson, the principal lesson is, if you are strong and courageous, you will not bow the knee to the state. And that is a principle in this account, certainly. That is a very clear principle in this account. That is not the main principle in this account. That's not why this is in the Bible for redemptive history. In fact, many have misrepresented this, and, and they've, made, they've made Daniel sort of a high-handed, belligerent, rebellious, courageous warrior because that's how they see themselves against the state. Daniel never says anything harshly to principalities and powers. He simply, quietly goes on obeying the God of heaven and earth while he had been in captivity for so many years. Now, just some brief background before we look at this together, and um, it'll help us to know that Daniel's been in captivity for for many, many decades, he's probably 70 or 80 years old at this point. Another misnomer, we tend to think of him as a young man going in the lion's den because all the children's Bible. He, he is an aged prophet in captivity. Uh, the, the ruler that he is under, this Darius, is probably, there's a lot of debate, but probably a shorthand name for the position he held, and it's probably Cyrus of the Persians. There's debate but if it is, we are told in this book that that ruler is 62 years old. Daniel is older than him. Daniel has proven himself over a very long lifetime. And Daniel, as you'll remember, has had favor with these pagan rulers constantly. His, his godliness has not put him in opposition to them, per se. His godliness, his faithfulness, his, 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 uh, his unwillingness to raise his fist at them under the name of courage 
and just to be faithful in the place where God had called him resulted in him being a blessing to these rulers. Remember, time and time again, Daniel is a blessing to these rulers, and so much so that he keeps getting put in places of exaltation. He keeps getting exalted over everyone to the point when we come to this chapter that that there is a plan for Darius to, to put Uh, Daniel over everyone. Daniel is one of three main governors over uh, who who oversee these 120 satraps, these these rulers, these these regional authorities in Babylon, these Persian and and Medo-Persian rulers. And, And now we're told in this passage that Daniel is about to be exalted to the highest place in the kingdom of men. And the other rulers don't like that. Now, I want us to consider first here that there is a conflict of kingdoms that's so clear in this passage. You know, we can't, we can't understand this unless we get Genesis 3.15. Remember, Genesis 3.15, it's the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, and God's promising to crush the head of the serpent. And God's promising to establish his kingdom in the world. He's promising to redeem a people to himself. He's promising to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and transfer a people out of that kingdom into a kingdom of light. And there's going to be conflict. And if you want to understand your Bible, you've got to understand that. Because every other thing flowing out in the Bible is integrally and inseparably related to the promise of God in Genesis 3.15. And here you have a clashing of kingdoms, don't you? You have God's people in exile because of their sin. God is dealing with them because of their rebellion, and he, he has brought on them the covenant curses that he promised, and yet he is still with them. He is still the God of Israel. He has not forgotten his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has not forgotten his covenant promises to the house of Judah, to David. He has he has promise throughout all the prophets when when they're in exile that he's going to restore them and yet in the midst of that there is this raging conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of god and the the scheming and the deceit and the accusations and the malicious plotting of the satraps is is a picture of how Satan is constantly trying to destroy God's people uh, through deceitful and scheming ways. Um, It's interesting if you go through the book of Daniel, even this chapter, and you see how many times the word kingdom is used. It's prominent. word kingdom. There's a clashing of kingdoms. Now, that's the world we live in. That's the world we live in. I know for so long, America has been like Disney World. I understand that. Let me say this. America is not the kingdom of God. America is not the kingdom of God. By God's grace, there are loads of true believers in this country. His kingdom has had a strong influence, just as Daniel had an influence there. Remember, God said when he put them into the land of exile, they were to be a blessing. They were to pray for the prosperity of the city. Again, not to raise their hand in militant rebellion. That is, that is a counterfeit Christianity. 
Don't let anyone deceive you into thinking if you're a real man or woman of God, you'll have a militant posture about the kingdom of God because that's not how it works. And, and yet God's people live even today among pagan nations. And, and, and they are called to understand the conflict that they're in. Um, There is here, secondly, I want us to consider um, Daniel's faithfulness in that conflict and his trial. You know, Daniel is one of the only old covenant figures of whom there is never mentioned any sin. It's interesting. All the other saints have pronounced sins and flaws. I even think Joseph does at points, but not Daniel. Daniel, Daniel is you get the sense that he is the most faithful man who, who ever lived in Israel. Um, think about this. He is taken captive probably in his 20s or 30s. He's been in captivity most of his life. Um, he's now an old man. And, and what the book of Daniel tells us is that when, when the satraps and the governors come together and... And they devise this plan and they scheme and they go to Darius and they stroke his ego and they, they, they convince him it will be a good idea for him to put in this law that whoever prays to their God or to any man other than to him for 30 days, this, this seemingly irrevocable law, even though in 30 days you can revoke it. But, but there's an irony there. This is, this is the, the kingdoms of this world raging. And, and yet Daniel just remains faithful. He remains faithful. He goes up to his room. He prays. I don't believe that we're meant to to understand from this that he is flaunting it as if to be seen by them out of courage. He is praying toward Jerusalem because that's what he was supposed to do in redemptive history. And he is praying three times a day. And the the passage tells us very clearly as he was accustomed to doing. Um, We heard this morning in our sermon that we ought to view spiritual disciplines the way we view exercise. That we don't, we don't, we don't grow, we don't, we don't mature if we're lax in disciplines. I have known that in my life. I've known that in recent years. If you're not reading your Bible, you're not going to grow in grace. If you're not praying, if you're not worshiping with your family, when the hard times come and the conflict comes and the trials come, you're not automatically going to start doing it. You see, Daniel was accustomed to doing it. And that's what made Daniel so faithful. He just faithfully entrusted himself to his God and did what he knew was pleasing to his God. And what, a, what an example there is. That is an example to us. Daniel is a man of great faith. He He's also in the great faith chapter by way of analogy, as David was, that he was delivered from the lions, right? He, he, he was a man who exercised faith in, in the God of Scripture. He would have meditated often on how God had delivered Israel out of Egypt. He would have meditated on how God had overthrown the kings of the Canaanites. He would have meditated on all the powerful works of God. He would have meditated on all the deliverances of God. He would have meditated on, on the sacrificial system by which God promised to redeem. He would have 
he would have taken everything he had by way of revelation and and as a man who was given to wisdom and and had a special calling from God as a prophet he those things would have been deeply ingrained in him and and that's what enabled him to be faithful um Now, behind that was God's grace and his working in Daniel. You know, we're told very early on that Daniel had, verse 3, an excellent spirit in him. Where did that come from? It came from the Lord. He had an excellent spirit in him. Earlier in the book, we're told that he had wisdom and learning, that the Lord had blessed him and his friends above the rest, which is why they were set apart for favor in this kingdom. And... He was, he was being preserved by God. We're going to see that, that principle of sovereign preservation while, while Daniel is remaining faithful under trial. His work is to be faithful. God's work is to bring about what he wants. And in this case, God is going to sustain him to the end. Now listen to this. Sinclair Ferguson says, The power of God that ensured that not a bone of Christ's body was broken guarded Daniel in order that he would be a powerful testimony to the coming Savior. A servant of God is immortal until his work has been completed. A servant of God is immortal until his work has been completed. That's saying nothing will happen to the servants of God in the face of the trials, in the face of the threats, in the face of the oppositions. Think how many of us would be tempted to compromise in this situation. I don't care how much we say, I would not do that, you probably would fall just like Peter if you said that. How many would be willing to just posture themselves a little bit, hide themselves for a little time, rather than remaining faithful in what God has called us to do? We are called to be faithful in the midst of the threats and the opposition. And you know what? They may come, and they may come fast in this country. And ours is not to complain about it or to talk about how we can militantly take over things or, or to have some sort of pipe dream of everything's going to go this way and Jesus is going to crush all his enemies tomorrow, right here and now. That's not the picture the Bible gives us. It calls us to remain faithful in the little things. Think about this. The only thing Daniel does in this section is praise three times a day. Now, I don't know about you. I need a much better prayer life. Um, I, I saw a number of years ago, a lot of young adults, I think they were millennials, I don't know anymore, I'm all confused about different generational nomenclatures, but, but they, they all had on their Instagram account, world changer, and I'm like, no, let's not go there. Um, how about three times a day prayer? Are you doing that? <laughs> the little things. Now, keep in mind, And my best friend showed me this once. Daniel simply prayed three times a day. All he did was pray. He got religious liberty, a raise, and a better outcome than the indictments of those that persecuted him. And all he does is pray. That's it. He doesn't party up with political parties, and he doesn't go over there and get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, hey, guys, you know, that was pretty awesome what happened earlier when Jesus showed up and saved you, and... I think we got this. Let's take this over. Let's get rid of these satraps. Let's get a bunch of Israelites in there, and we'll, we'll take it over. He simply prays, and God does everything for him. Because God was testing Daniel. 
He was testing them. Um, now, you know the story, you know the outcome. Uh, Daniel is faithful, he's faithful, so much so that Darius has such respect for him, he, his heart is broken over what he has to do because he's bound himself to this unjust law of the Medes and the Persians and allowed his ego to be stroked. And the last thing he wants is for Daniel to be thrown in this lion's den, which is, by the way, remarkable because when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remained faithful, remember what the king said, turn up the heat. Here, you've got Darius or Cyrus wanting to rescue and deliver Daniel, but he can't. He's bound himself to this un just principle. And so Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. A stone is rolled over it. The king's signet is put on it. I don't think at the behest of the king, but most likely at the urging of the satraps, lest someone come and help him out in the middle of the night. And, and then the king goes and has the worst night's sleep of his life, is deprived of entertainment and food and everything that he would love because his heart is weighed down because he knows what's happening to Daniel is unjust. And Daniel, we don't know what happens in the lion's den. Um, I, I've heard some theologians say I wouldn't have put it past him to have had a really sweet night's sleep that night, like Jesus on the boat in the storm, because he would have had a clear conscience. Um, what enabled Daniel to suffer like he did? He had a clear conscience before God men. Now, what you may not know, and, and if we stop there and we all recited a line of, I don't even know one, dare to be a Daniel. I used to when I was a kid. And then we went home and we're all just daring to be like Daniel. We would miss the point of this. Um, while, yes, we are to follow his example and we are to pray that God would give us such a spirit as him, and we should all long for that as Christians, um, Daniel is part of the big picture of what God is doing in delivering and redeeming his people. He is, he is going to be a picture of the last Adam. Now, how do we get there? In the very next chapter, I've told you, uh, Daniel is going to prophesy about four nations under the imagery of four beasts. And throughout Daniel's prophecy, the nations, the persecuting nations who are in opposition to God are likened to ravenous beasts of prey. Why is that important? Because it follows right on the heels of Daniel in the lion's den. And Daniel comes out of that lion's den, and, and he's been unscathed by these animals. He, he has been there, he has been there unhurt by these, these, these ravenous animals of prey. And, and I think we are meant for our minds to go back. Why, why are animals the way they are? Why, why would that be an apt illustration of devouring nations? Why would God pick up on the beast in, in, in the, the, the den as an apt uh, illustration of the satanic nations of this world? Because because all the nations of the world are Babylon. That's, that's a principle. There's kingdoms in conflict. All the nations of the world are Babylon, and they're all in conflict 
with the Jerusalem above. That's the picture the book of Revelation gives us, that every nation is under the sway of the evil one. And why, why would ravenous animals like lions be picked up as an apt illustration? Well, because they are reminders of the fall, aren't they? Before the fall, Adam would have been in the garden. He, he was there. The first task he was given was to name the animals, to, to dress and keep the garden, and to have dominion over them. Don't miss this. There is a dominion background to the book of Daniel. It's a prominent theme. Um, Daniel's going to have a vision in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He'll say, I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven even unto the Ancient of Days, and to him was given kingdoms and dominions and rule and authority. That's, that's a picture of the ascension of Christ. And, and the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is going to overthrow the kingdoms of this world in the consummation, he is going to rule and reign perfectly in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and Daniel understands that what he's writing about, and, and even, I think, to a degree, what he is experiencing is bound up in that. And, and Adam was there in the garden, remember? And now here's Daniel as a sort of a, a second Adam, just like Noah with the animals in the ark. And they are tamed, just like Isaiah predicted in the new creation that the lion would lay down with the lamb. Now, that's, that's all meant to go together. And remember Jesus when he comes, and, and the greater Daniel is in the wilderness being tempted by the evil one, and Genesis 3.15 is coming to fruition. Mark tells us that he was there, and the angels strengthened him, and he was what? With the wild beast in the wilderness. That's what that imagery is entailing. He is the last Adam. Daniel is showing forth a little picture of the one who is going to bring about the new creation, who has power over all things, and who is going to bring peace in a newly created world. And he's going to do that by suffering and resurrecting. And if you've never read this, and your mind has not gone immediately to the end of Matthew's gospel, where you have a tomb and the body of the Lord Jesus is put in it, and stones rolled over it, and a seal is put on it. If you can't see that very striking similarity, then we have missed why this is in the Bible in part. Um, listen to this. Charles Spurgeon said, Daniel is a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had enemies who tried to destroy him. They could find nothing against him except touching his God. They accused him of blasphemy, and then afterwards, as they did Daniel, they brought a charge of sedition. He was cast into a den, into the grave. His soul was among the lions. They sealed his tomb with their signet, lest anyone should steal him by night. But he arose as Daniel did, alive and unhurt, and his enemies were destroyed. Isn't that remarkable? Listen to this, Ian Duguid says, Like Daniel, Jesus was falsely accused by his enemies, brought before a ruler, Pontius Pilate, who sought unsuccessfully to deliver him from his fate, just like Darius, before handing him over to a violent death. Like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to die. His body was placed into a sealed pit so that his situation could not be changed by human intervention. Jesus' trial went even deeper than Daniel's. However, he did not merely suffer the threat of death. He went down into death itself. That's where the difference is. Jesus was consumed so that you won't be. Because at the end of this passage, what happens? The very people that accuse Daniel have the very thing they wanted to happen to Daniel happen to them. And yet, 
Jesus goes into the den. He says, this is your hour in the power of darkness when he hangs on the tree. He, he does have his flesh ripped apart in judgment. And then Duguid says, although Jesus was innocent, he suffered the fate of guilty ones. There was no angel to comfort him with the presence of God in the pit. On the contrary, he was left in the blackness, utterly alone and abandoned by God, suffering the fate that we, the guilty ones, deserved. His body was left entombed in the icy grip of death for three days before the angel finally came to roll away a stone. Now, if that's not obvious to you, there's something wrong. Um, that, that is so clear. That is so very clear. You know, I mentioned earlier, Daniel, Daniel is one of the only figures in the Old Testament, perhaps the only one of whom we're never told of any sin that he does. And that could be really discouraging if you know how sinful you are like I do, me. So, so if you have a modicum of self-awareness, that's super discouraging. Because if somebody wrote my biography, it's a mess. And, and Jesus didn't come to save people who were sinless. That's not why Daniel's faithfulness and uprightness is in the Bible. He did not come to save people who were as godly as Daniel. Though that should be a goal for us, godliness. And, and you know, it's very interesting. Daniel had a counterpart in Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel 14 and then chapter 28, the Lord says this. He says to, to, through the prophet to, to the people, even if Daniel and Job and Noah were in your midst, I would not save you. What is that saying? That's saying there's got to be another one that Daniel is pointing to. If, if God would not spare the people from the judgment they deserve, if Noah, Job, and Daniel were all together in the same place wherever the people of God were, then, then what Ezekiel's saying is there has to be another one. There's got to be somebody else. This is not it. As blameless as Daniel was, as instrumental as God made him in using him in his kingdom, in even gaining the respect and authority over the nations to some degree in an exalted sense, like Joseph before him, he is not the one. Um, Ferguson says this, though Daniel's experience, through Daniel's experience, God gave hints of what would occur when Christ came to deal with the powers of darkness. By exposing himself to the power of death, he conquered all of his and our enemies. Isn't that awesome? There's a greater Daniel, and he is the savior of sinners like us. Now, it goes a bit further. I noted already what happened here, and I want us to consider, thirdly, very briefly, a reversal of divine judgment. There is a very clear principle of a reversal of judgment. What, what the wicked wanted to happen to Daniel happens to them. And there is a, there is a starkness, isn't there? Before they even hit the, the bottom of the pit, the lions had devoured them in judgment. What's, what's the point of that? Well, I've noted already that when Christ suffers, and, and Daniel's going into the den and coming out is a picture of death and resurrection, just like it is throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There is an exaltation. Daniel's exalted. He suffers, he is brought out, he is exalted again, and then judgment is poured out on the enemies of God. And, and here's the beautiful thing. Jesus takes the judgment we deserve so that we 
can be just as confident that we are not going to be destroyed by the evil one or fall under the wrath of God because we have a Savior who has already taken that judgment for us. That's everything. But then that same Savior is going to pour out all of his righteous judgment on the wicked, on those who are still in Adam, on those who belong to the kingdoms of this world and to the powers of darkness. And there's going to be on Judgment Day a grand reversal. What, what, what's happening with Daniel is actually pointing us forward to Judgment Day. It's, it's pointing to the new creation with, with Christ giving his redeemed people uh, dominion over even the, the, the ravenous beasts like the lions. And, and yet it's pointing forward to the judgment God has already poured out on Christ so that he is keeping us safe and he is guiding us through the wilderness of this world so that when we go through this world and it can be a terrifying thing and the powers of darkness can be very threatening, that that we can learn like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress that we can see the lion, we can hear him roar, and we can know he's on a chain. That he's already been bound in the death of Jesus. And, And that means we can have full confidence that we can serve the Lord Jesus with boldness and with, with faithfulness and not fear the outcome. That's one of the principles. You, Daniel didn't know whether God was going to deliver him or not. Um, Daniel was willing to suffer like so many faithful martyrs throughout the history of the church. Um, Daniel didn't know whether God would deliver him or not. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11, he says, look, some, some were delivered from the mouths of lions. Some were sawn in two. The outcome's up to the Lord. He doesn't always deliver like that. But he always delivers on judgment day everyone who's united to Jesus Christ by faith. Everyone who's in Christ will be safe from the devouring lions and from the wrath of God throughout their total life and all the way into eternity. Isn't that amazing? Now, anything short of that is not giving you a faithful exposition of this passage. Well, while so much more could be said, I want to encourage you tonight um, with just three things, recapping these three points. First, I would just encourage you to meditate often on the fact that we are living in conflict with principalities and powers and forces of darkness And we were thrust into that the second we were converted and redeemed. God delivered us from one kingdom into another, and every day of our life, and maybe, listen very carefully, Daniel had the worst conflict when he was like 70 or 80. We often think when we're new Christians, we're going to have it. Daniel had the biggest trial at the end of his life. But but knowing that we're in that conflict, not, not allowing us to put our guards down and to think, hey, we're all just rocking through this great world and enjoying everything we can, but realizing we are in hand-to-hand combat with the evil one. This is the whole point of Ephesians 6. Having that mentality and knowing that God has promised the victory is vital. Number two, that ought to then fuel in us a desire to be faithful. We need to be faithful. We need to be faithful in meditating, reading the Word, reading it to know Christ more, not just to fill our minds with more knowledge, reading it to know God's will, reading it to know the Lord more, reading it to to have our faith increased, right? Faith comes by what? Hearing? Hearing by the word of God. So I need to be in the word. We need to be in the word. We need to be meditating on it, filling our minds with it, 
as we go through the conflict in this world, we need to be men and women of prayer and fellowship and worship. I know you are. I want to encourage you in that way. And then finally, I want you to consider um, in every way, in whatever circumstances or situations God puts us in in this life, and some may be very challenging and very difficult, Christ has already conquered. He's already conquered. Um, And that means that if we are trusting in him alone and we are looking to him by faith, in whatever situation he puts us in, we can be confident whether he delivers us or not, he will deliver us in the resurrection on the last day. And we will dwell, and this is marvelous, think about this, one day. I don't think it's just a metaphor. I think when Isaiah, in three chapters in his prophecy, talks about the lion and the lamb, and the little child and the serpent, I don't, I don't think that's just a metaphor. I think one day we will be in the new heavens and the new earth, and there will be no death or sorrow. There will be no fear. There will be no devouring animals of prey. There will be no sin. There will be no hatred. There will be no more conflict. Why? Because Christ, the greater Daniel, went into the tomb and came out victorious and even now has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the son of man who has been given authority and dominion that he can rule forever and ever. Um, What an awesome Savior we have. I hope that the Lord will stir us up by way of reminder tonight in these things. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us a greater sense that we are involved in real and eternal um, combat with the forces of darkness, with principalities and powers and the rulers and authorities of this age, and that you would make us to see that the kingdoms of this world are but Babylon, and yet your kingdom is uh, triumphant and is an everlasting kingdom. We thank you, even as we reflect on this passage, that uh, the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans have passed away, but your kingdom, Lord Jesus, is everlasting. We do pray that you would make us faithful, Lord, that you give us a greater commitment to give ourselves wholly to trusting in you by um, being in your word and calling on you in prayer. We pray that you would increase our desire for your word and prayer. And finally, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would remind us that there is no condemnation and judgment on that last day because you have come conquering and to conquer. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have taken the judgment we deserve. We pray that you would comfort and strengthen each one present here in these truths tonight. We pray these things in